You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's Pastor to Middle Adults, Joe Cook. Well, I wonder if you've ever felt lonely. Happens to all of us sooner or later, some point in our life, regardless of our age, race, or socioeconomic status, loneliness is something that humanity encounters from time to time. You can feel lonely in a crowd. You can feel lonely at church. In fact, sometimes church is one of the places where people encounter loneliness more than other places. For some reason, and you understand it as well as I, sometimes when we come to church, we put a mask on. Pleasantness, politeness, to cover, to mask the hurt and brokenness that's inside, sometimes the shame Sometimes the fear of rejection, we put that mask on and we hide. And when someone asks us how we are, we're, oh, we're fine, we're just busy. Those are kind of our responses. And those responses and that hiding, well, it can make us feel lonely, even in a group of people, even in a group of people that we would hope would understand. Loneliness is a real issue in our world today. It's such an issue that even, even secular researchers have looked into it to see what is it in, what's its impact in the workforce. If you have heard of Cigna, it's a global health service company. They did a major research uh, project into this to find out how is loneliness affecting Americans in the workforce. And what they found out is that it's significant. 61% of people reported feeling lonely, classified themselves as lonely. They offered an example to point out that it's not, just the, it's not just the fact that people maybe don't have friends, it's, it's because you're, you're, sometimes you're over-connected. The demographic that showed the highest rate of being lonely were the ones that were most connected to social media. That doesn't make sense, does it? You can talk to a friend that lives across the nation or around the world. I wonder why that is. They gave this example says, for example, two-thirds, 64% of very heavy social media users report always or sometimes feeling alone compared to 45, 45% in 2018. Now, here's the interesting thing. This data, this research that I'm providing you came out in January of 2020. What was about to happen? COVID was about to hit. And people said, oh, don't worry. You can zoom into work. You can zoom in. We'll live stream the church to you. And we learned something in 2020. It's not the same. It's just not the same. We missed that encounter, even though we're connected, even though we're, we're touching people sort of technologically, vis, vi, digitally. It's just not the same. There was something missing in that. You know, the researchers, they did it because they were concerned about the the financial impact, but there's other impacts on us too, aren't there? The loneliness separates us from the people that we love, and it seems to be accelerating. Look at what one person wrote. So we live in an accelerating contradiction. The more connected we become, the lonelier we are. We were promised a global village. Instead, we inhabit the drab cul-de-sac and endless freeways, a vast suburb of information. Now, his article was, is Facebook making you lonely? It could be Facebook, it could be TikTok, it could be Instagram or Twitter. You can be very connected and yet still be lonely. Why is that? 
Why do you think you can be so connected and be lonely? I've been thinking about it this past week or two. And here's the thing that I came up with. I think it comes back to that idea of hiding. Now think about it. Where is the best and easiest place to hide? Online. You can put your profile picture up there where all your makeup's on, you look pretty. I could put hair on my head and put it on there, and it would just be wonderful. And in, in behind where I'm typing, and I could look rough. I could have tears running down my face. It's real easy to hide. You know what else it's easy to do? Is stay really busy. We've created a world with this little bit of technology, cell phones. We never have to have an uninterrupted moment. We stay busy, and we hide in the busyness. We hide in the busyness. And here, it's the worst kind of hiding, because when you hide in the busyness, you know who you hide from? Yourself. And you hide from God. You hide from the thoughts, from that still, quiet moment. So researchers are concerned about it because it affects mental health. God's concerned about it for a different reason. And that's what we're going to talk about today. God's concerned about it because God loves you. That's why he's going to do something about it. I'm fascinated with the early chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God telling us about the creation of the world. And over and over again, what does he say? It is good. It is good. It is good. He repeats himself over and over again. There's one time in Genesis chapter 2 where God says it's not good. And some of you know what it is. He said, it's not good that the man is alone. That was the only thing. That was the only thing that God said wasn't good. And he did something about it. He created a companion. He created woman. And there with God and Adam and Eve in the garden, there was perfect community. It says they were naked and unashamed. You know what it means when it says they were naked other than the lack of clothing? No mask. They were vulnerable. They were open. They were exposed to the world and each other, and it was okay. They weren't feeling the need to hide from anybody. And that community was, Adam was perfectly connected with God, and Eve was connected to God, and then Adam and Eve were connected together, and it was just this beautiful thing. Perfect community. And then chapter 3 comes. And in chapter 3, we all know, sin enters the world. Sin enters the world, and what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do? They hide. They hide from each other by putting leaves over their body. Then they hide from God when they hear him walking in the garden. And I love that, that verse. You know, you have to spend a lot of time with someone to, uh, to recognize their footsteps. They recognize God's footsteps coming to walk with them in the cool of the day. Remember that perfect community? God walking with them. They're unashamed. They're unmasked. They're vulnerable. And it's okay. That was good. And then God did something that I, I'm just, I'm enamored with this verse. It's Genesis chapter two, um, chapter 3, verse 9. If you ever come into my office down the hallway, I've got this verse on my wall. So I'm serious when I tell you that I'm enamored with this verse. This is what we read. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? Where are you? It's amazing. This is the omnipotent, omniscient. Every prayer, everywhere present God, and he asked a question. He wasn't looking for information. He wasn't looking for knowledge about what they had done. He was inviting them to come out of hiding. And from that point in Genesis 3, all the way through the end of Scripture, what we see is God is on a mission 
to be with his creation again in unbroken fellowship and community. It started at that moment, and it started with the words, where are you? And I'd like to ask you today, how would you answer that question? Where are you? Are you hiding behind busyness? Are you lonely? Are you hiding behind social media? Where are you hiding? I want you to hear in Scripture today God's, God's soft footsteps coming through history, providing a way for that reconnection. Now, we've been in the series of David, and we still are today. And in this series, it wouldn't be complete to talk about David's life unless we talked about his role in God's mission to rebuild this, this perfect community. What we see leading up to David's life is God's always initiating. He always takes the first step towards us. That's what we see consistently. He moved towards Abraham. He moved towards Jacob. He moves towards Moses. And when he moves towards Moses, he calls them out. He, call, he, he rescues Israel from, from Egypt. And as they're getting ready to make this journey to the promised land, God wants to create a way for him to be with them. The mission's still in its early stages, but he wants a way to be closer to them. And he tells them this in Exodus 25. Let them, he's talking to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Listen to that last part, dwell in their midst. What's God's desire? To be with his creation, to be with his people. So they created a tabernacle, and the tabernacle traveled with them. Well, then we get to the kingdom age, and we get to David's reign. And David one day is looking out, and he recognizes he's in a house, and God's in a tent. And he starts to thinking about that. So I'm going to ask you now to make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to do a little review for just a moment. We were there a number of weeks ago, but there's a couple of things I want us to refresh our, our memory on. <clears throat> so like I said, David recognizes he's in a house, God's in a tent, and he just seems to think that doesn't sit right. So he looks around, and Nathan the prophet's there, and he tells Nathan, Nathan, I want to build a temple to God. And Nathan says, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it. Well, then Nathan goes home. And God begins to explain to Nathan, uh, not so fast. I never asked you to build me a house. I've been very content to be in this tent, in the tabernacle, moving around with my people. Here's where I'd like for you to join me. Chapter 7, verse 11. About halfway through that verse, you're going to see the word, moreover. Remember what David has said, I'm going to build God a house. Look at verse 11, I love this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. Whew. Think about it. David says, I'm going to build you a house. God says, no, I'm the house builder. I'm the one that's going to build a house. It's exciting. Look at what's next, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's some important words there, and I want you to think a little bit like David. And a lot of you have read ahead. You know the rest of the story. You know where some of this is headed. But I want you to think about this is the first time you've heard it. There's a couple of things that are a little confusing here. In verse 11, we read, God will make a house for you. And then in verse 13, we read, this son, this offspring, he's going to build a house. So who's going to build the house? Is God going to build the house? Is the house for God or is the house for David? 
And are we talking about a metaphorical house? Are we talking about a dynasty? Because he uses that word forever. Sometimes when we come to scriptures, we think we know, we move past them too fast. I think there's a little bit of confusing information here. And we look at it, and we ought to be, I think, scratching our head a little bit, or at least I do, thinking, I wonder what's going on. And so let's read ahead, and let's see what else. But before I move on, though, I forgot one thing. Look at that word forever. That's a big word. And also notice there's no no conditions here. God has told David, I'm going to do this. This is going to happen. That's a promise. No conditions, no ifs, no ands, no buts in there. So this is a little confusing. When I hear the word forever, my mind goes to the, the eventual son of, God, a son of David, which is Jesus, who's called the son of David. So is this about Jesus or is this about somebody else? Well, let's look at verse 14. I will come to him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, whoa. Now, I was thinking up to there that we were talking about Jesus. Now he says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. That forever word continues, still no ifs or ands, But he talks about the son committing iniquity. Are we talking about Solomon? Are we talking about Jesus? Are we talking about the brick and mortar house that Solomon's going to build? Are we talking about a house that Jesus is going to build? It's a little bit confusing. And what we have to do to kind of unpack this is, well, one thing we have to do is we're going to have to keep on reading, but there's also some cross references. And to save time this morning, I'm going to tell you over in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and 29, David gets some more information. In that information, God tells him, yes, we are going to build an actual house out of stone, and he's going to even give him the plans for it, and David's going to get real excited. He can't be the builder because his hands are covered in blood, but his son is going to do that. And so David starts piling up gold. And in chapter 28, verse 6, we read this. He said to me, this is God speaking to David, it is Solomon your son who shall build me a house and my courts, and I have chosen him to be my son. Okay, so is that the answer to my question about the Davidic covenant? This is all about Solomon and this house. Well, then we come to the next verse. And Next verse, sorry. 28.7, I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments, my rules, as he is today. Do you see a problem in that verse? If. There were no ifs, no ands, no buts in the Davidic covenant that we looked at in 2 Samuel. So again, who are we talking about? Are we talking about Solomon? Are we talking about Jesus? The temple that's built in Jerusalem? Or something that Jesus is going to do? One of my favorite professors kind of rides in on a white horse here to help us out. I want to give you a quote from Eugene Merrill. He writes this, these verses, speaking of the Davidic covenant, he says, they are a good example of an Old Testament passage in which some elements find fulfillment in the immediate future. That would be Solomon and strictly human descendants, and I would say in that strictly physical temple. And then other elements will be realized only in the more distant future, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so we're going to look at both of these this morning. So now I'm going to ask you to turn to one other place. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to look at this first temple, and we're going to learn some things about it. 
as we, as we move ahead in this. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 13. I want us to see the grandeur and the glory and all the work that goes into creating this earthly temple by Solomon. Chapter 5, verse 13. And King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft number was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be in, the month, they would be in a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters that he had in the hill country. Besides that, he had 3,300 chiefs who carried on the work. This was a national project. And talk about gold. If you were to keep reading through these chapters, it's like every time Solomon sees something that they built, he says, you know what? Lay some gold over it. Hammer some gold over it. He's putting gold on everything. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 10, you're going to find out that gold was so plentiful in Solomon's time that silver was like stones. I mean, the guy loved gold, and as he's building the temple, he just puts gold everywhere. Look across the page, or maybe you have to turn a page to chapter 6, verse 22. We read this, And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished, and the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid it with gold. He was like, put more gold on it. Give me more gold. I want more gold. <laughs> Why the extravagance? In an ancient world, a nation was understood to be stable when it had a palace for the king. A nation was understood, the, the greatness of a nation's God was understood by the greatness of its temple. Solomon was attempting to say, our God is the greatest. And so he's bringing as much glory and as much expense and being as intentional as he can possibly be in the building of this temple. And as impressive as it is, and I've never been in a room covered with gold. I don't know if any of you have either. I would imagine it was a pretty impressive sight. But as impressive as that is, it's not nearly as exciting to me as the theme that takes place that we're going to discover as we move forward. Look at chapter 6, turn a page, look at verses 29 and 30 with me. Around all the walls in the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. And verse 30, and the floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer courtrooms. <laughs> Put some more gold on it. Do you catch the theme though? Palm trees, flowers. We're going to see later, if you kept reading, he's going to talk about, he's going to have some oxen sculpted in there, and he's going to have lions, and then these giant angels, cherubim angels, all covered with gold. Where have we seen cherubim and animals and flowers and trees? We've seen them in the garden. There's a theme. We saw the same theme in the tabernacle. If you go back and you read that, the tabernacle was meant to be a place where God dwelt with his people. And where did we start this morning? Where was God walking with his children? In the garden. What is he on the mission to restore? That community. Every time they walked into this temple, they should be thinking about the garden, thinking about the mission that God was on. Tim Mackey, a scholar of Bible Project fame, some of you are familiar with, writes this, the temple was a sacred reenactment of humanity's return to the garden where they could live together with God in peace. In this way, the temple was a prophetic symbol that pointed forward to the day when all people could enter into the divine presence in a renewed 
creation. The temple was a sort of living, breathing, hard, tangible prophecy. Now, you and I, we're Western, most of us have a Western mindset. We think of prophecy as prediction and prophecy. We'll tell you, this person, this group's going to win the Super Bowl, and then that's what happens. To the Hebrew mind, to the Eastern mind, prophecy was often pattern, and there's tons of patterns taking place in the Older Testament, and nowhere more so than in the temple, in their sacrifices, in their festivals, in the way things are ordered in it, in the very decor of it. It's all reminding them God's doing something. God's working on a way to restore the ability for you to come and meet with him and to be united with him. The temple was a prophecy of things to come. That's exciting. But the physical structure had limitations. And I want us to take a moment to consider those limitations. Look in chapter 7 and look at verse 27. 7, 27. What we read there, this is Solomon praying. And Solomon is acknowledging something. He says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, Heaven and earth, the highest of heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Here's the thing Solomon recognized. God doesn't live in a house. There's no house big enough. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He says this house has limitations. But God's presence is going to dwell there in a special way. In another place, when he finishes his prayer, we see fire come down from heaven and take up the offering that they have. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple so much they can't walk into it. That fire represented sort of a special presence that the people could come and be in that area with God. It had another limitation, and this time God's going to be the one that brings it out. One more place, chapter 9, look at verse 6 with me. Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, this is God speaking. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children... And you do not keep the commandments and statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. That temple had some limitations. There was some conditions. Remember, Solomon is associated with the conditional elements. Jesus, we're going to see unconditional elements associated with that. And what God is saying here, listen, this house will stay here and it will be a place you can meet with me, but there are some conditions. And of course, we know as we read ahead, Solomon and the nation, they fail. And that temple is wiped off the face of the earth. But God's not finished yet. He's still on the mission moving forward. There's an ultimate son of David that's coming and that's where we're going to go now, into the New Testament. I want to bring your minds to think about that one of those passages we read each Christmas about Mary, and she's being told by the angel that she's going to have this baby, and she's told the to name of Jesus. But then in Luke 1, verse 32, we read this. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. So he's the Son of God, he's the Son of Mary, and the Lord will give to him, notice, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the ultimate son of God. The unconditional promises, those forever words that we heard, they apply to Jesus and the house that he's going to build. Both the sons of David are house builders. 
One of them built a house that functioned as a prophecy. The other one is going to build a house that functions as fulfillment, the ultimate. When Jesus was walking on earth, he's the incarnate God. You remember? Do you remember what he wanted to do in the tabernacle? Dwell with them? Do you remember what was lost in the garden? Was that fellowship? Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is walking on the earth. And some of the Jewish leaders said, show us a sign and prove to us who you are. And Jesus gave them this response. He answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, Jesus is talking about something else. They think he's talking about the temple that Zerubbabel had rebuilt and Herod had expanded. They've got this fancy temple there, and they think he's talking about, you're going to destroy that giant building, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days, and notice what we're told. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus' body is the temple. And here's what I want you to understand. There's three facets, three manifestations of the house that Jesus built. The first one that we see is the body of Jesus Christ himself. He tells us his body is the temple. And remember what the purpose of the temple was? It was about God with us. And you remember one of the things that God did when he was in the garden? He walked with his creation. And now Jesus is on earth, feet on terra firma, walking with his people. The mission is getting close to complete. But God's not finished there. His body was a temple, but he also, as he was resurrected after his death, burial, and resurrection, he told his followers, he said, I want you to remain in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit is going to come down and rest on you. And indeed it did. On the day of Pentecost, we read this in chapter 2. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, where was the last time in this message that we talked about fire coming from heaven? It was when the Spirit, the special presence of God, dwelt that building that Solomon made. And here we see the house that Jesus being, that he's building, fire coming from heaven and filling those people in a special way. And here's the truth. It does that to every single person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. If you came to faith a few minutes ago when Reggie was talking, the Spirit of the living God indwells you. If you did it 80 years ago, it's indwelling you. We read this in Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Remember in the garden, Adam's connected to God, Eve's connected to God, but he's not done yet. There's a very special thing happening right now where you're sitting. Each and every person in here, we are part, uh, we, we are part of this temple. We're part of a collective. We're part of a corporate body. Peter talks about it this way in his epistle. He calls us living stones. Look at this. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When we're all together, there's a special way in which we make up the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit, the fellowship that we have. And what was God on mission to restore? When he said, where are you? What did he start to resolve? What had divided us? What had caused us to, to be hiding from one another? And they had that perfect community. And now we have the opportunity as brothers and sisters in Christ. The pathway has been made. 
for that perfect community to be restored. Paul talks about it like this. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Strangers and aliens. It's lonely being a stranger and an alien. He continues, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being built and joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Have you seen the three manifestations of God moving towards you? Have you seen what he's doing? He's working to rebuild what was restored. Can you hear him? Where are you? He's been asking it since that day, and he's asking it today. The soft footsteps of God. If there's one message that I find to be perfectly clear in this book, and not everything is perfectly clear. Some of them make my head hurt a little bit. But there's one message that is perfectly clear. God wants to be with his creation. It was the first thing he did when they sinned, and it's what he does consistently through as he initiates, he moves forward. God loves you. When Reggie was doing his devotional, he talked about being the friend of God. That's the invitation. God is inviting us out of our hiding. But there's some things that we're going to have to do. You say, Joe, I believe. I've been a believer for a long time. But the truth is, I still experience loneliness. You know what? So do I. I think all of us do at certain times. And there are different reasons. Not all of the reasons for loneliness are sin. You can confess your sins and have those washed away, and you can still feel loneliness. I'm telling you, there's, there's another step. We have to be brave enough to step out from behind our mask and step out of hiding to be in the presence of God. And we have to do that with one another as well. What I would like for us to consider for a few minutes is what can we do to receive God's approach to us? And here's the thing I want you to think about. At the beginning, we said there was a certain group that really has a hard time, um, really has a hard time with loneliness, and it was the people that are the most busy. It may be social media for you. It may be the newspaper. It may be work. It may be housework. It may just be chores around around your, your place. We like to stay busy because we like to hide. And here's one thing I know. In order to receive the approach of God, we're going to have to slow down. Uh, one of the staff pastors, Caleb Carmichael, recommended a book to me a number of weeks ago. The title of the book is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And it was a thought-provoking book, and it was well worth the read. And I have been chewing on some of the things that were said in there for weeks now. I shared it with some of the, the pastors, and we unpacked one part in particular one morning. He shares a quote in that in that book about the speed of love. And we're going to talk about the speed of love. We're going to have to slow down in order to receive the pursuit of God. He shares this quote from a Japanese theologian whose name I will not butcher for you this morning. He writes this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would, not, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed, and it's an inner speed. It's a speed, it's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the time, from the technological speed in which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. The impetus or the inspiration for that book 
was based on a conversation that Comer became privy to between John Ortberg and Dallas Willard. Ortberg asked Willard, how can I proceed in my Christian faith? And Willard's response was, you're going to have to deal with hurry. That was his response. He said it this way. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must, must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Why? Because the speed of love, the speed of connection is slow. We hide in our hurriedness. We, we hide in our busyness. And the worst thing is oftentimes we hide from ourselves. And worse than that, sometimes we hide from our God. Comer and this theologian that I shared are not the only ones to recognize this. You may not be familiar with the name Walter Adams. I wasn't. Turns out Walter Adams played a major role in the life of C.S. Lewis. He was his spiritual director. And here's a quote from Walter Adams. He says, To walk with Jesus is to walk slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer, and it only impedes and spoils our work. It never enhances it. As the pastors, as we talked about the speed of love, one of the stories that came to mind, and I think it perfectly exemplifies this speed of love, is the Good Samaritan. You think about those three men that walked by a man who was robbed. Two of them are in too big of a hurry to stop, but one man took the time. One man took the time to stop and invest in this other person's life. The speed of love is slow. It takes time to love people. It takes time to, to grow. How do you ask, when, you, when people ask you how you're doing, do you respond, oh, I'm fine, just busy? I have. It's come out of my mouth this week. <laughs> Comer makes this comment. We hear the refrain, I'm great, just busy. So often that we assume that a pathological busyness is okay. After all, everybody else is busy too. But what if busyness isn't healthy? Let that question sink in. What if busyness isn't healthy? I would ask it this way. What is it that's keeping you so busy that you can't make time to listen to God or make time for other people? What is it that's making you sick? What is it that's pulling you away from those connections that are so important? We have a God and he wants to be near us. And one of the things that's going to happen to receive that approach is we're going to have to slow down. We're going to have to slow down. I've got a suggestion for you this morning, and we're going to kind of participate together in it. We're going to do a little run-through, but I'm going to ask you this week, every morning when you wake up, before you reach for your phone, which a lot of us do, or your newspaper or your remote, I'm going to ask you to sit on the edge of your bed, and I want you to think about the speed of love. Here's how Jesus put it in John 15, 9. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I love that word abide. It's one of my favorite Bible words. That word abide means to remain, and it speaks to this idea of slowness. You know what else it means? It means to remain in the same place for a period of time. I'm going to ask you when you wake up this morning to consider, or in the, in the mornings this week, to sit on the edge of your bed and just stop and just call out to the Lord and say, I want to receive your approach towards me.
You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.